Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we take the Heidelberg Catechism as the summary of God's Word and also as the, the topical starting point for our, our afternoon sermon. And in connection then with the Lord's Day that we'll read this afternoon, we'll read two chapters from Scripture. First, Revelation chapter 20. The topic is the return of Christ in judgment which is a heavy topic, I acknowledge that. And to look at that, we will turn first to Revelation 20, verse 7 through 15. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out and... Go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written, written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." So far from Revelation 20. Let's also turn back in Scripture to the book of Psalms. To Psalm 69. This is a psalm that, uh, where, where David prays for deliverance, but also for God's judgment. And let's just read that psalm together. Psalm 69, beginning in verse 1, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. 
Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garments. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me, be, let me be delivered from those who hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise His prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them, For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So far, the word of God. Let's now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19. And we're looking especially at question and answer 52. So we'll we'll just read that one. That's on page 534 of your books of praise. There the question is, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution... I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. 
but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. So far the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 19, we're looking somewhere towards the end of the Apostles' Creed, um, right at the point where the Apostles' Creed makes a transition from the things that it declares about the past to the things that we believe uh, about the present and now to the future. So up to the previous article, it dealt with the past. Then it says he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. That's what's going on right now. And now it moves to the present. It's good to understand Christianity is a historical religion. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to believe certain things about history, that certain things have happened. And that doesn't just include the past, but it also believes things about the present and also about the future. And that's where the Apostles' Creed takes us today. Uh, The line is quite simple in the Apostles' Creed. It's not a complex or uh, long line. It simply declares, Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. That's what we as Christians believe about the future. And what we'll do then this afternoon is we'll, we'll first see what we mean by that, what the Apostles' Creed means by that and where Scripture teaches it. And then I hope to have some time to stop and reflect also on the impact that that truth has on us. There's no question that the Bible does teach this truth, that Christ will return again bodily and He will judge the living and the dead. That expectation is is written all over the pages of the New Testament. Uh, Let me just give, give a couple of examples. Already when Christ ascended into heaven, already there the angels who were present declared that Christ would return. They said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that's already at the time of Christ's ascension, we see a promise of his return. A few chapters later in Acts, you find Peter speaking to a group of Gentiles, and Peter says to them, He, that's Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's where we get that phrase from the Apostles' Creed. Peter declares, Christ will judge the living and the dead. You find Paul saying the the same thing a few chapters later in Acts 17. This is when Paul went to Athens and was speaking there in Athens, and he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance by raising Him from the dead. So, right from the very beginning, the apostles recognized the direction of Christ's reign in heaven. Ever since Christ ascended into heaven to reign there, history has taken a sharp new 
course involving the church being built, the kingdom being established, and it has a direction and a destination to which it's now getting closer every single day when Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And He will then return. He will cause the dead to rise and He will judge them all, both those who loved Him and those who hated Him. That's the direction that history is now very quickly running towards. That's why Paul's warning in that text is is so severe when he's speaking to the people at Athens. He commands them, repent because the day of judgment is coming. That's always been the Christian witness as Christians go and do evangelism around the world. The, The message is, repent Believe the gospel because that day of judgment is coming. It it shapes our entire way of seeing the world and seeing history. So what will happen then on that day of judgment? Well, that's why we read from Revelation 20. Let me give a, a summary statement first. First, every person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they will have to give an account. Every person. Christ is very clear about that, including us believers. The Apostle Paul says in in Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Uh, he, He says a couple of verses later too, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That's true then of unbelievers and it's true also of believers. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20 gives us a glimpse into what that day will look like. Uh, And you can turn there again if if you like. I'm going to point out some details in that text in Revelation 20. He speaks of a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and that is Christ. And he says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. So in this passage, there are two sets of books. There are the books that are opened in verse 12, which are the books that all the dead are judged by. And those books contain all of our works, all of our words, all of perhaps even our thoughts. The Lord Jesus warns us in in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's the contents of the one book. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what level of detail is in that book, but we should be prepared to have our entire lives, even our thoughts, read aloud on that day. And the things that we have done that we hope that nobody will ever know about, we should be prepared to have those read aloud if that's the will of God. We're not told what will be in those books or what will not. We're only told we will stand before that judgment seat and those books will be opened. Those are the one set of books. Then there is another book in Revelation 20 and that's the book of life. 
And that book contains the names of those who believed in the Savior whom God sent, namely Jesus Christ. These are those who, during their life on earth, confessed their sins, repented of their sins, and put their hope in Christ. And it says there, if anyone's name was not found in that book, in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. We need to know that God's Word is not at all ambiguous about the reality of judgment and the reality of hell. There are so many verses in Scripture that warn us of this reality. It's one of the clearest doctrines in Scripture. No matter what any uh, theologian tells you that uh, maybe God's Word is not so clear, it is one of the clearest doctrines in all of Scripture. It's a hard doctrine to accept. It's hard because it's emotionally difficult to swallow, but it's not unclear in God's Word. God's Word teaches that hell is both terrible and eternal. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus tells us that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as an experience of outer darkness, utter distance from God and separation from other people. And elsewhere in Revelation, it's described as so terrible that those facing it will long for death, for rocks to fall on them and crush them. This is the the hard reality of hell that Scripture is very clear about. And as terrible as as it is, Scripture teaches us it is also eternal. Jesus warns His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, "If, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, in in Revelation we read, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There's no notion that anyone will ever pay their way out of hell. No end to the suffering, and after endless years, it's still only the beginning. That's the reality of hell that Scripture teaches us about. And that's why the Gospel calls us now to repent and to put our trust in Christ. It's not an insincere call. It's a very simple call. Repent, believe, and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will not be cast out of His presence. Scripture is, is not, it does not make salvation something impossible to grasp. The Gospel message is very clear. But we need to know that day of judgment is coming. History is running forward, rushing forward towards that day as Christ builds His church and as Christ uh, gathers, or gathers His church and builds His kingdom. And so the Gospel is, is set in front of us here and now, confronting all of us with our sin here and now so that we would repent now and not have to face that judgment. Well, when we reflect on, on these scriptural truths, 
I imagine it's hard for many of us to be comforted by the knowledge of, of these things. And, and the reason I mention that is that's the way the question is worded in the catechism. It's not, what warning is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? No, the, quest, the catechism asks, what comfort is it to you that Christ will do so? Now, for some Christians, it may be that they're, it's hard for them to be comforted by this because they know that they still haven't repented of their sin and they're still not trusting in Christ. And if that's the case, then it's good that they're not comforted by this truth. It isn't meant to be comforting for, for the wicked. Uh, for those who know that they are living in sin and refuse to repent of that sin, this biblical truth isn't meant to comfort them. It's meant to warn them. But for those who, who do struggle against their sin and, and who continually struggle to put their faith in Christ and to follow Him, the, the Catechism does offer an answer that is full of comfort. It tells us, don't forget, the one who will be sitting on that white throne before whom you will stand, the one to whom you will have to give an account, is the very same person who bore the penalty that you deserve. He is, of all people, He will know that your penalty has been paid. That's who we will be standing before. The one who was on the cross thinking of us, going there in, a, in our place. He gets to be our judge. He, he tells us in, in John that all, God has given all judgment to Him. In other words, He gets to make the call whether anyone lives or dies. And that should be immensely comforting because He suffered in our, in our place. He knows the price that was paid because He is the one who paid it. And He will not easily forget it. And already now, of course, we enjoy relationship with Him already our whole lives long. And so that should be comforting to us that Christ will be our judge. He says in John 6, All whom the Father gives to me, they will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That ought to be our comfort as we look to the final day of judgment. But there's more to say about how the knowledge of the day of judgment impacts us. Notice that the Catechism doesn't just say that it's comforting that Christ will be our judge. That's certainly true. It's also comforting, according to the Catechism, that He will cast all His and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all His chosen ones to Himself in glory. Let me ask you, are you comfortable with saying that the knowledge that God will judge His enemies is a comfort to you? That Christ will cast all His enemies into hell, does that comfort you? I think many of us, when we read this, we, we feel hesitant and maybe even guilty to have such thoughts. Like, I'm not supposed to think this way. It, it feels vengeful to think this way. Uh, I don't think I'm supposed to want Christ to cast His enemies into condemnation. Surely any Christian who recognizes himself to be a sinner feels some degree of discomfort with, with that statement. Is it really right for me to be comforted by the thought of what Christ will do to His enemies? 
Well, that's why I chose Psalm 69 as one of our readings this afternoon. Psalm 69 reflects on that same emotion that you find here in in the Catechism. And perhaps some of us had some of that same discomfort as we were reading through Psalm 69. What do you do with Psalms like this? Well, let's turn to Psalm 69 to see it again in context. Again, this is a psalm that's written by David. And in, the, in this psalm, numerous times he pleads his cause before God. He acknowledges that he's not a perfect man. You can see that in, uh, in verse 5. He says, Oh God, you know my foolishness. My sins are not hidden from you. So this is not a, a self-righteous psalm. He doesn't think he's better than his enemies. He acknowledges his sin And yet, he also acknowledges that he is being persecuted without just cause. He says in verse 4, Must I restore what I did not steal? In fact, he says in verse 7, It's for the the name of God that he's being persecuted. Or again in verse 9, he says, The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. And so here's a man who, though he's a sinner is yet being persecuted without just cause. And in the middle of all of that anguish and persecution, he cries out to God for deliverance. And part of that prayer to God is that God would also bring justice on the heads of his enemies. You can see it in verse 22 and following. He says, Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. And he goes on and on. Can we sing a song like this? Is it right for Christians to sing a psalm like this? That question is especially hard if you think about the teachings of Christ Himself, uh, for example, on the Sermon on the Mount where he, where he tells us, you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What are we as Christians to do with this? Does Jesus contradict David? Well, it's interesting to notice that Psalm 69 is quoted in the New Testament no less than four separate times including quotations of these difficult verses. In fact, in at least three separate occasions, the psalm is, is attributed to the Lord Jesus Himself. In fact, you hopefully notice some of the allusions, Him being given vinegar to drink and, and gall for, for His food and other allusions to Christ. And never once do we get any indication that Christ or any other author in the New Testament is ashamed of this psalm. The New Testament uh, nowhere criticizes the emotions that are expressed in this psalm or says, nowhere does it say, now that's not how you're supposed to think any longer. And you can see this same attitude in the catechism. Uh, The authors of the catechism found great comfort in the fact and the knowledge that Christ will cast his enemies into eternal condemnation. Uh, you don't get for a moment the impression that the catechism is embarrassed about finding comfort in 
that hard reality, even though that's something that I think often makes us uncomfortable. And so we might be wondering, well, how then does this square with the teachings of the Lord Jesus, uh, like the teaching to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, who persecute you? How does it square also with what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Well, the difference or, or the solution is this. Consider how Paul finishes that very same command. Beloved, never avenge yourselves because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In other words, it's the knowledge of God's righteous, perfect judgment that enables us to not take vengeance on our enemies. It also keeps us then from not taking ven- or keeps us from taking vengeance for the wrong reasons. You see, when we take revenge against others, more often than not, we don't do so out of a love for God's honor or God's name. When we take vengeance against other people, we do so because they have hurt or offended us. It isn't because we love God's honor or God's justice, though we might claim that that's the reason. But if it were the reason, we would be equally upset at a thousand other things that have nothing to do with us. But when we get offended and when we desire to take vengeance, it's because we have been offended and our honor has been violated. And that's where Christ calls us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him, to repent of the fact that our honor matters more to us, more often than not, than the honor of God, and to begin honoring and worshiping God instead of ourselves. The fact is, our self-worship was so offensive to God, God alone being worthy of worship, that Christ died that brutal death on the cross to pay for our sin of self-worship. And so to be a Christian then is to recognize that in every circumstance, the greatest offense committed is never between me and my neighbor. The greatest offense is between me and God and my neighbor and God. It's always between a person and God because it's God's honor that is the most worthy of being upheld and It is the greatest violation when that honor is offended. What this means for us then is that now as Christians, we relinquish any thought of revenge because we realize that when others sin against us, the great tragedy is not that they have dishonored us, though that might be the emotion in our hearts. The great tragedy is not that we have been offended The tragedy is that God's honor and God's name have been offended and violated. And so, when Christ teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, He's calling us to see things as God sees them. To think God's thoughts after Him. The offenses that we suffer are very small in comparison to the offenses that God suffers, uh, both from them and from us. And when we know that, if, if we truly know and it settles into our hearts that God will bring perfect, full justice, 
And that apart from their repentance and salvation in Christ, they will suffer an eternity of hell for their sins. If we really understand the significance of that truth, then we cannot help but feel compassion even for our enemies because they are fellow human beings and fellow sinners just like us who could not pray for their enemies when they are so close to being lost forever and when we ourselves deserve the same thing. And so, when, when we take Christ's teachings to heart, we begin to think God's thoughts after Him, and the offenses committed against us begin to seem small in comparison to the offenses committed against God. Having laid that groundwork then, let's go back to Psalm 69. The reality still is, the godly do suffer injustice. Scripture is, is very honest and I would say compassionately honest about that truth. The fact that the godly will suffer horrible injustices. And when they do, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, they don't lash out because they recognize they have their own sins before God and God says vengeance is mine. And so the godly ought not ever to lash out in revenge, but they do know that they can cry out to their God and pray for His justice. And that's what we see in Psalm 69. When we suffer horrible injustices, as I imagine some of you have, and I know many Christians around the world are, it is natural and it is right for us to cry out to God for justice. There are times when Christians like David experience such horrible injustice that their broken hearts have nothing left but to cry out to God for justice. To cry out, bring justice on the heads of these people who violate your standard of righteousness and justice and they think nothing of it. Pour out your indignation upon them. The saints in heaven themselves, they cry out in Revelation 6, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's not just an Old Testament uh, sentiment. It's just as much there in the new. Uh, there's nothing that so sickens the soul as seeing and experiencing injustice. Some of you maybe saw in the news reports this week of the, the couple, the Canadian couple that came back from uh, the Taliban. They were released, I, I believe, last week or the week before. And they, they spoke of some of the injustices committed against them. In one case, their child, their infant child, was killed before their eyes for, for a silly reason that they didn't want to cooperate with their captors. That kind of, when you see that kind of injustice, the human heart has nothing left but to cry out to God for justice. And that is, biblically speaking, a good and natural thing to do. In North America, we're blessed that we, we personally experience so little of that injustice, but we should never, ever look down on those Christians who do and who cry out to God for justice. It's part of being made in the image of God that, that we are sickened and enraged by injustice. Uh, the tragedy really is that we don't have those emotions often enough. That, that we're only sickened by some sins and not by others. 
We ought never then to look down on Christians or men like David for writing psalms like these. They're crying out to their God in the midst of horrible injustice. And and so that's why David writes this song and that's why the Lord Jesus Himself took this song on His lips. These men are thinking God's thoughts after him. They're, they're not looking for personal vengeance like unregenerate people do when their pride or their honor is offended. That's not at all what's going on in David's mind here. He's, he's bearing up under unspeakable injustice and directing his prayer to God. Oh God, vindicate us. Pour out your wrath on your enemies. Add to them punishment upon punishment for what they have done and what they continue to do. So Christians are called then to cry out to God for justice even though at the same time we recognize that we ourselves have violated God's standard of justice. You see that also in this psalm. He he acknowledges, God, you know my sins. They're not hidden from you. Even though we know that we are sinners, we still have the right to cry out to God for justice. It's a good and natural thing to do. This is also then the world that the catechism was was born in. Uh, So many believers in that time during the Reformation were burned at the stake or had their children or their parents or their spouses executed for the sake of the gospel. It was very close to home uh, to experience this kind of injustice. And so when the catechism gives this answer, it might strike us as odd that it speaks of God's judgment as a comfort, but it certainly was a comfort to them in that time. And we ought never to uh, disparage them for taking comfort in that truth. So again, Paul says in in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's the knowledge that the day of judgment is coming that gives us the strength to not seek revenge here ourselves. God's justice is far more perfect than ever any kind of punishment we could think up ourselves. Uh, The punishment of hell is far more severe than anything we could make up ourselves. And that punishment lasts forever. It's knowing that that enables us to forgive our enemies here and to pray for their repentance and salvation. And so it's the, it's the comfort of many Christians around the world, and it should be our comfort too that God will return, or that Christ will return again to judge the living and the dead. Every injustice that has ever been done on this earth is recorded in his books, and he will administer perfect justice. Even if they manage to escape justice on earth, they will face his justice thereafter. This is a comforting thought to anyone who has seen or experienced this kind of injustice. We know that God's justice will be perfect. And that should be a comfort to us, especially as we go through sufferings and persecutions. And it may well be God's will that we ourselves one day will experience some of the same injustices. And we ought to prepare ourselves for that day by already now reflecting on that truth that that day of judgment is coming. And so even though we do not experience such suffering, or at least most of us do not experience 
such suffering now, let us be a people who remembers God's justice and who remembers our brothers and sisters who do experience such sufferings. And let us join them in crying out to God for justice against their persecutors so that we bear their afflictions on our minds and our hearts as well. And so take comfort, brothers and sisters. The day of judgment is coming. Your judge is perfect. Your judge has already stood in your place. And so your judge will not condemn you if you belong to him. But he will bring judgment. And let that be a comfort to us. Amen.